Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Hello everyone, welcome to our Tuesday talk. It's wonderful to see so many of you here in Clarice Beckett, the present moment. You are in for a treat. We are of course on Ghana country today, Aksagana Miana Yatanga Yuandi. And today you have the great honor and pleasure of hearing from Jill Jones. Jill Jones is a poet, a writer, an academic. She was shortlisted this year for the New South Wales Premier's Award for Literature, which is very, very exciting. Congratulations. It's really wonderful. Jill has had a long-standing fascination, obsession, devotion to the work of Australian women artists, and you've long been a champion of their work. I first met and worked with Jill about 15 years ago, perhaps, give or take. That was in Newcastle in New South Wales, where as part of the Sydney Writers' Festival, we held an exhibition. It was called Poets Paint Words. Poets Paint Words. And it was curated by a, an author, an, a writer, and an academic, Peter Minter and myself, for Newcastle Gallery. And Jill was one of the poets that we invited in to look at the collection. And I recollect pretty clearly, actually, the day that you came in and we sat you on a chair with wheels. Do you remember this? Jill was invited to respond to a very large painting by, yeah, by John Olson. It was actually a painting that was John Olson's former ceiling. John painted it, it's called Life Burst. He painted it on, as he was kind of, while it was part of the ceiling in his Wallara home. And it was the ceiling that was part of the hallway. So just imagine the scale of this work. So we figured the best way to get Jill into the painting was to sit her onto one of those chairs, those desk chairs with wheels so she could roll along and be in the painting that we'd taken out of store. Out of store. After that, Jill spent some time crafting a fantastic poem that was then presented with the painting itself as part of the exhibition. So Jill's return to the art of ekphrasis is a very welcome one and a lovely one here in Adelaide and a one where the clarion call of Clarice Beckett has kind of beckoned us all, I suppose, to this exhibition. Thank you so much, Jill, for giving us time and all of your time and great creativity. Can I ask you to join me in welcoming Jill Jones? Thank you, Lisa, and it's a real pleasure to be here today. And I also acknowledge that this talk that I prepared for you was prepared on Ghana land, and I acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. And I want to talk to you today uh, about some ideas around spiritualism and theosophy and how they affected modern art. And then, of course, I'll refer to Clarice Beckett as part of that. And I want to start in the 19th century because Beckett was actually painting in the 1920s and 30s and the 19th century was not all that far from her. And I want to fo focus first on why certain uh, spiritual beliefs 
beyond the realm of traditional Christian beliefs became popular in various waves from the mid to late 19th century. Uh, and it was a time, of, as we know, of industrial expansion and the height of colonial exploitation. And it was after the Enlightenment era of the 18th century where rationalism had already seriously questioned religious belief. And it was also a time um, of major scientific discovery and technological advance. For instance, you'd be aware that Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species caused a lot of controversy, especially with the church, because it challenged traditional narratives of the creation of the world and the origin of humanity. There were technological advances as well, such as the discovery of electromagnetism and a growing list of inventions throughout the century, such as the telegraph, the telephone, photography, and the typewriter, and later even um, the cinema, causing people to wonder about the unseen forces in the world, or to question the uniqueness of very common things such as handwriting or artisan image making, and by implication, authorship. The 19th century also saw new discoveries in archaeology, such as the translation of the Rosetta Stone, and this raised ideas of alternative religions and creation myths. And there was also a new interest in the arts of the Far East as well, and we know that Clarice Beckett was very interested in those. And many of those who actually didn't want to abandon their spiritual beliefs altogether started exploring alternate beliefs and practices. Indeed, other kinds of beliefs were also being questioned, those particularly around the position of women, or the operation of capitalism and working conditions such as those critiqued by Marx and Engels. Many women were involved in suffragism or radical politics who were also attracted to these new spiritual ideas because, for better or worse, much of 19th century spiritualist thought was particularly inclusive of women but mainly because they were regarded as being more spiritual than men. Spiritualist circles offered women possibilities for esteem, for opportunity, and for standing that were denied to them elsewhere. It did so without directly challenging the existing social order, yet it offered women some agency, and indeed for a few, an income from certain spiritualist activities, even if, let's be honest, it, as it, and it has obviously emerged, they were often exposed as frauds. Although I want mainly to look later at ideas of theosophy and anthroposophy, and try saying that really fast, as these ideas did indeed have some influence on many artists, including in Australia, Clarice Beckett, I'll mention a few other forms of spirituality just to give you a bit of a picture. 19th century spiritualism owes its beginnings in part to Emanuel Swedenborg's writings on the spirit world, and received additional stimulus from Anton Mesmer's experiments in what he called animal magnetism or mesmerism, and that's what we now know as hypnotism, as he believed that it involved the influence of celestial bodies upon the terrestrial body. Many Victorians, particularly those who had begun to abandon conventional religion, believed in these spiritual ideas and attended seances to communicate either with the dead or with spiritual entities. This included poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes. Even, indeed, Queen Victoria had an interest in communing with ghosts, and I'm sure we can guess which ghost she was particularly interested in. 
Other activities or beliefs included clairvoyance, spirit-guided writing, crystal gazing, reincarnation, and thought reading, and theosophy, which I will get to. It's interesting actually to think about where a lot of the newer ideas came back into Europe. And they came from the New World, in particular the United States. And they'd sprung up there at a time in the United States when it actually was welcoming of new beliefs, as well as it was a haven for practitioners of alternative Christian beliefs that were, had been fleeing persecution in Europe. So not only did theosophy start there, but also uh, a belief that's called transcendentalism and new thought, among other ideas. And I'll just briefly mention transcendentalism because Clarice Beckett was known to read the poet Walt Whitman. And as an adult, um, he grew up as a Quaker, but as an adult, um, he was in some ways influenced by transcendentalist thought um, through the way it celebrated the individual's capacity for spiritual self-discovery. This sounds like the part of the great American dream. And its ideas that it was through the closer appreciation of nature that the human soul was enlightened. As he famously writes at the beginning of his one of his famous poems, Song of Myself. I celebrate myself and sing myself, and what I assume you shall assume, for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. And later in the poem, it's a long poem, but you can find it online easily enough, um, he says, I fly those flights of a fluid and swallowing soul. My course runs below the soundings of plummets. I help myself to material and immaterial. No guard can shut me off, no law prevent me. Okay, I just want to turn for a moment to a new artistic technology. Um, it does have some relevance to this. And given that many of these 19th century spiritualist movements believe that the human spirit existed beyond the body and that the dead can communicate with the living, the new process of photography was enlisted to prove or record these things. Note that the theosophists, Annie Besant, who I'll mention later, and C.W. Ledbetter, in their work Thought Forms, that I believe um, Beckett read, mentions the use of photography as a useful means of, quote, forming a link between clairvoyant and physical scientific investigation. But photography started to go a bit further than that. And the first photographer to produce and market spirit photographs was William H. Mumler, who had a studio in Boston from the early 1860s. And there he photographed clients alongside ghostly images of deceased friends or relatives. Other photographers went even further and took pictures documenting seances and the supposed activities of mediums such as telekinesis, levitation, and the production of ectoplasm. These supposed vital forces were often captured directly on the photographic plate without use of camera. Of course, much of this was either directly fraudulent and often exposed as such, or a form of artistic license. But it extended the idea of what the new photographic medium could achieve beyond the documentary and scientific. Indeed, some of these techniques were also used by photographers of the so-called pictorialist movement in the middle of the 19th century who began to use the dark room to produce images that allowed them to express artistic ideas, to tell stories or produce fanciful or dreamlike images using soft focus and manipulations such as composite images. Some of these pictorialist approaches were influences on Clarice Beckett's work as well. 
But let's talk about some of these major spiritualist movements and ideas and how they affected in some way or shape or form the practices of art towards the end of the 19th century into the 20th. Now, many artists of the late 19th and early 20th century were in fact influenced either directly or very directly by theosophy or anthroposophy or similar spiritualist ideas. And I'll just do a bit of a list here. They include Mondrian, who was actually a card-carrying theosophist, but also Kandinsky, Brancusi, Robert Delaunay, Paul Clay, Franz Marc, the architects Walter Gropius of the Bauhaus School, and to an extent, Walter Burley Griffin, among others, which may or may not explain Canberra to us. Mendiliani was interested in Ouija boards and seances. Writers and composers also were influenced, including the poet W.B. Yeats, who Beckett also read, and he attended the Dublin Theosophist Lodge, Boris Pasternak, Catherine Mansfield, T.S. Eliot, in a sense, and the composers Scriabin and Schoenberg. The Surrealists, a little later in the 20th century, of course, used automatic writing and dreams in their work, for different effect, of course. I'll first start with the symbolists before I move on to theosophy. These were a loose literary and artistic movement that flourished from the 1880s to the 1910s, roughly, particularly in Paris, but also in Russia and other places. Forerunners of that movement include the poet Charles Baudelaire, and he was also under the influence of the poet and writer Edgar Allan Poe, interestingly American, and a little later, poets Stéphane Mallarmé and Paul Verlaine. In 1886, a symbolist manifesto was published stating, this is quoting, in this art movement, representations of nature, human activities and all real life events don't stand on their own. They are rather veiled reflections of the senses pointing to archetypal meanings through their esoteric connections. Although a lot of major symbolists were poets and writers, there are a number of visual artists also in rather diverse ways drawn into the ideas. And they include, these are names you will know, Paul Gauguin, Gustave Moreau, Gustave Klimt, and Odilon Redon, and to an extent, the work of Rodin. Symbolist writers and artists were not always active practitioners of spiritualist activities, although some did quite seriously, or at least they dabbled. They were mostly wanting to evoke the spiritual whatever that may have meant to them individually, in contrast to the perceived materialism of that age. In this sense, the movement in art terms can be seen in part as a reaction to realism or naturalism in art, or even more immediately, it could be argued, impressionism, whose concerns were more based on fleeting sensory impressions and grounded in everyday life often urban and suburban, rather than what have been, might be seen as deeper or higher matters. This, of course, is arguable vis-a-vis -vis Impressionism. In this context, although Clarice Beckett's work is grounded in the everyday, and you can, we're at the end of the exhibition, so I'm sure you've seen that, it, there's also that sense of reaching out to something beyond. In other words, she could be seen as working in between these apparently conflicting modes, the present and the universal, nature and the spirit, and by implication, challenging those dichotomies, although I'm sure she wouldn't have put it like that. Okay, theosophy, we're finally getting there. The Theosophical Society was founded in 1875 and indeed still exists. There are a number of branches or lodges in Australia, including one in Adelaide down on South Terrace, 
And it was an individual presence on and off in Australia since 19th century, late 19th century. Even Alfred Deakin, our second Prime Minister, attended seances, channeled messages from mediums, and was, for a short time before Federation, a member of the Theosophical Society. The Society's motto is, there is no religion higher than truth, or more expansively, to serve humanity by cultivating an ever-deepening understanding and realisation of the ageless wisdom, spiritual self-transformation, and the unity of all life. The Society was founded by Helena Blavatsky, often referred to as Madame Blavatsky. She was born Helena Petrovna Khan in Russia, or what is now known as the Ukraine. And in 1873, she moved to New York, where she and Henry Steele Alcott established the Theosophical Society in 1875. She later founded a lodge in London in 1887, and there she met Annie Besant an English suffragist, radical political thinker, and after meeting Madame Blavatsky, she became a Theosophist convert. And she visited Australia three times in 1894, 1908, and 1922. And her 1908 lectures, it is possible that Clarice Beckett attended, although we don't actually know. We, in fact, do know that Alfred Deakin did attend them. Now, theosophy claimed to distill common elements from many of the world's religions and esoteric traditions and to establish what it would propose as a universal understanding of these. The idea of fundamental principles could bridge East and West, Christ and Buddha, and that was immensely attractive to a number of artists, particularly in a context of colonial expansion at the time and exploitation, it obviously needs to be said which aroused interest in cultural similarities as well as differences. Now, although the society claims no formal dogma or established rituals, the Theosophist Society, I mean, it does speak of spiritual advancement as a process of initiation through levels. Also, some scholars have noted that it formalised, could we even say bureaucratised, a wide selection of spiritual beliefs that existed in variant, even contradictory forms over hundreds, even thousands of years, and promoted in some ways a select society of initiates. One of the members of the Theosophist Society was an Austrian, whose name you may have heard of, Rudolf Steiner who developed theories of a more European spiritual path, particularly influenced by German idealist and Rosicrucian thought, as well as his ideas around artistic expression, influenced in particular by Goethe. He parted company with the Theosophists over all of this, as well as their support for a world leader or prophet, Krishnamurti, who in fact did visit Australia. And he set up the Anthroposophical Society, which he called a path of knowledge to guide the spiritual in the human being to the spiritual in the universe. Steiner schools or Waldorf schools are still around, as some of you may know, and are known for their emphasis on art teaching. So let's get to the crutch of this. Crutch, crux. That was a bad. The crux of this. <clears throat> Jill. So, what about art? How could an artist? present or represent these deeper or higher matters in their work. And note this metaphorical focus away from the actual surface, the very material that painters, at least at this period, were working with, the canvas, 
the paper. As well as symbolism that I've was talked about before, another way was the path of what's known as abstract art, one of the most important movements in early modern art. If you consult various histories of art, you'll find many names of abstract artists, um, including many of the names I've already mentioned. Um, and even an atheist like Picasso played around with tarot cards. Now, I mention him as it's important not to always take, make that leap from the kinds of activities that artists, composers, writers, who might immerse themselves in or affiliate themselves with certain ideas to generate a kind of state of being um, that is artistically productive, to make that leap to actually strongly held beliefs of any sort. I'll say this because I know this to be true. Many manifestos and artistic statements don't always coincide with the actual work that is produced or the life lived. Putting my hand up. It's also important to recognise that the styles and approaches that may have been inspired by theosophy and similar ideas were quite diverse, ranging, to take two examples, from Mondrian's development of rectilinear geometries to Kandinsky's improvisational energies. For instance, Mondrian moved from early landscape painting to think of other ways to work with place or space. He began to associate natural elements with a primarily horizontal space, and recall he lived in the Netherlands, and the vertical with the non-natural spaces, the artificial windmills, lighthouses, churches, etc. He developed geometric and other ways, say through colour, of depicting opposites between matter and spirit, inner scales and outer horizons. And in his writing years later, he'd identify the natural with the horizontal and the spiritual with the vertical. You can see how, particularly in this room and in another rooms, how Beckett was also interested in these ideas, as if there is a reaching upwards to something or a reaching, a reaching across, say, water, air, the road. You can see that all in these paintings here. Or consider Kandinsky, who was commonly credited with being the first painter to venture wholly into the realm of abstract art, though more recent, the more recently discovered work of the Swedish artist Hilma F. Klint, an artist who claimed that her most important work was actually literally guided by a spiritual entity, predates uh, Kandinsky. But back to him. He came to believe that most non-representational, that is abstract art, was the best way to express human emotion and ideas. And he regarded music as the most transcendent form of non-objective art, because music did not represent objects, but could evoke inner feelings in listeners' minds simply through sound. He used musical terms to categorise his work, and you'll see that when you look at some of um, reproductions of his work. The more sp spontaneous paintings were improvisations, then there were impressions, and the more complex work were compositions. Kandinsky is also reputed to have been influenced by Madame Blavatsky's ideas. Some claim he actually was a theosophist, others that he was responding to a number of ideas of the time about the spirit, including concepts in German philosophy, Hegel especially, as well as religious ideas in theosophy. Be that as it may, his book Concerning the Spiritual in Art is still in print. He writes in it, the spirit is often concealed within matter to such an extent that few people are generally capable of perceiving it. 
Here then is that element of Gnostic Hermeticism, knowledge only available to a select few that permeates some spiritualist thinking. But I want to just make some final remarks about colour in, with regard to all of this and to think about Clarice Beckett in this um, sense. Kandinsky says, colour is a power which directly influences the soul. Colour was certainly central to Rudolf Steiner's art ideas. He drew on Goethe's theory of colour with its focus on the interplay of light and dark, of the human and the spirit. In this theory, colours have a hidden nature and various colours have specific spiritual effects. Thus, the artist must develop a feeling, a sensitivity towards the differences between certain colours. Although often presented as scientific, this is colour theory as metaphysics and Kandinsky's formulation is in this mode. In this regard, Annie Besant's ideas that colour auras or thought forms as she called them, emanate from individuals that reveal their emotional and spiritual state. She claims in her work, Karma, the aura surrounds every person, each thought, each feeling, thus translating itself in the astral world, visible to the astral sight. But let's just come back down to earth a little bit and reflect on Clarice Beckett's aim or her aim, if we can rely solely on her one recorded statement, to give a sincere and truthful representation of a portion of the beauty of nature and to show the charm of light and shade, which I try to give forth in correct tones so as to give nearly as possible an exact illusion of reality. This is, on the surface of it, a simple declaration of, say, a realist approach or naturalism truthful representation, the beauty of nature. Yet, if we consider correct tones and what an exact illusion of reality might really mean, and then look at the paintings themselves, this asks us to think on, among other things, what her use of colour involves. Is it natural or something more or both? And what it can reveal or represent, because these paintings are not wholly representational works, always. Her work also represents a continuum between motion and stillness, and you can see that very much in these paintings in this room, rather than a burst of spiritual illumination. The light sources seem multiple rather than singular, or if the sun is present, and that's further back in the other rooms, it is a diffuse rather than blinding presence but certainly a receptivity to something just beyond the frame or even lingering around the surface of the canvas or cardboard in some cases is happening here, as well as a sense of the rhythm of reality, however any of us conceive that. The colour in the paintings, her correct tones, could be seen as balancing the dualities of the natural and the metaphysical of light and shade, and she includes more black than Steiner, for instance, may have preferred. Perhaps it is her version of what Kandinsky referred to as a responsive vibration to all the colour there is in a place, dictated by the world's diurnal round. Thus her work is tonal rather than fixated on specific colours, I think that's very obvious in this room, and her works, though unified by a spiritual artistic vision, do shift through more or less representational modes while approaching abstraction. 
And significantly, uh, they are nearly all situated in specific, often identified places um, around Port Phillip Bay, Beau Morris, uh, in Melbourne, um, and they're mostly outdoors. They are works of, to quote the title of this exhibition, The Present Moment. Um, Beckett's very particular reality, the particular light, spontaneous and made, the sense of her materials is ever present, yet with a sense also of the limitless within and further than a day's particulars. It's not abstract art, it's, but it's more than fleeting impression. And though the fleeting is important, there is also a kind of geometry, and maybe a spiritual geometry, I don't know, that holds it together. And I'll leave you now with this quote from Kandinsky as we stand up and move around the exhibition of Clarice Beckett's work, and you've seen most of it anyway. But where the everyday also reveals itself as something more, something we may not have thought about as we move through our ordinary day, that can take us beyond overthinking and into contemplation. Kandinsky ends with a rhetorical question, but I think we could simply take it as an open question as well. He says, lend your ears to music, open your eyes to painting and stop thinking. Just ask yourself whether the work has enabled you to walk about into a hitherto unknown world. If the answer is yes, what more do you want? Thank you. That was seriously wonderful. And so generous to write such a detailed and beautiful paper in response to the exhibition experience. It's one thing to stand up here and to talk directly to the work, but to be so in the moment and yet so able to make all of those connections back to art history. That was fantastic. Thank you very much, Jill. Really, really wonderful. <laughs> Beautiful. A rare moment. I think one of the things about the exhibition is it is so immersive that you're in Clarice's world. So you made all of those links from Kandinsky to Blavatsky to the broader kind of social movement, a technological movement, and of course spiritual movement most importantly, that places her in such wonderful context and in great company. Very important thing to do for Australian artists, particularly those who were working in relative obscurity, I think. So thank you, that was just fantastic. Join me in a final thank you to Jill Jones. <laughs>